This podcast continues because of listeners like you. During the episodes released in February, I'm asking you to become a recurring supporter of the show by signing up at Patreon. By doing so, you receive unique thank yous like a weekly update posted every Friday, early access to higher quality audio episodes, the ability to enter exclusive giveaways for books, tickets to events, and other permaculture resources, and so much more. There are currently 132 Patreon subscribers as I record this, and my goal is to reach 150 by the time episode 1807 is released on March 10th. Find out more at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. If you prefer to give on a one-time basis, consider donating a dollar an episode. It would really help. You can give online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by dropping something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Today, Avery Ellis of Colorado Greywater joins me to talk about aquaponic systems, water harvesting, and his entry into the world of community politics when he joined the stakeholder process that changed the laws around how people can collect and use water in Colorado. From these experiences, he's created the foundations for a pattern language, which he shares with us, that we can use to remove the restrictions placed upon permaculture designers, homeowners, and businesses that practice sustainability and build resilience. We recorded this interview in person at a local coffee shop and get started directly with Avery's biography. Enjoy this conversation, and I'll join you again after. It all started for me in 2006 when I went to India as a semester abroad through uh, living routes out of UMass Amherst. I got to live in an international eco-village called Oroville for six months and study all things sustainability. Before that, I was a pre-med biology student and once I had traveled the world and seen a lot of what was going on, there was no turning back from there. And so when I graduated college, I realized one of the best things I could do was build skills in the field of sustainability. And so I worked on a biodynamic farm for a year, I installed solar panels, I did home energy audits, I even taught snowboarding as a way to build my teaching skills. And I didn't understand at the time how it was all going to accumulate into a, a whole picture. But then around 2010, I took a permaculture design course in Colorado uh, with Sandy Cruz, high altitude permaculture. From there, I really just got inspired and started going out and practicing permaculture. You know, the stuff I was reading in books was all great, but I had to get my hands in the dirt and experience it firsthand to really, you know, get a sense of what it was all about. So, you know, not only did I continue to build skills, but um, I pursued a master's degree in ecological design from San Francisco Institute of Architecture. As part of that uh, master's degree program, I was able to attend workshops and advanced trainings and get credit for them. And so one of those advanced trainings was a Greywater certificate program out of California through Greywater Action. And also studying with Brad Lancaster down in Arizona. You know, those skills really inspired me to, to step into the water world. And my master's thesis was all about aquaponics because I was in Colorado at a time where indoor controlled environment growing was becoming a major technological advancement. You know, sort of marrying the old world technology of farming with the new world technology of pumps and 
controllers and you know Arduino microcontroller boards. And so I took what I was learning and I brought it all together and, and uh, wrote my master's thesis on aquaponics. Now, were you living in California while you were studying, or was that a program you were able to do remotely and then provide you the opportunity to travel between like Colorado and Arizona yes. and apply these skills while you were studying? Yes, it was a distance learning program. So I had an advisor out in California, um, and I visited occasionally, but I was able to travel and live in Colorado at the time while I was doing my master's degree. Okay. Now, as we started this conversation, we're setting things up before we started recording, you told me that you were originally a Jersey boy. Yes. So yes. how did you wind up in Colorado then and <laughs> engage in all this, this activity? Oh, that's, that's a great question. So I was studying my undergrad in New Jersey where I grew up, and um, I went to India as part of my undergraduate program. And when I came back, you know, I really realized that I had to expand my horizons. And so as soon as I graduated college, uh, my wife and I, we weren't married at the time, uh, we traveled all around the country. We visited all of the lower 48 states. We landed in California on a biodynamic farm. And it was a really cool experience. And from there, we moved to Tahoe, where I taught snowboarding. And my wife got into graduate school in Colorado at Naropa, where she was studying wilderness therapy. So we migrated back a little east to Colorado and landed, landed in Boulder. So then, as you were working on your master's thesis and these issues of gray water and aquaponics, were you building systems then at that time? And also, what year was this that we were doing that? Yeah. Because you yeah. mentioned the PDC in 2010. Yep. All right. So it was 2008 when I started my first indoor aquaponic system. Okay. It was in my living room. I was using a 50-gallon fish tank and a Rubbermaid tote as a grow bed. And I built a little frame, and it was next to our television. And we never really watched television, so I hung a tapestry over that, and we had this grow light with basil and bell peppers and tilapia right in my living room. I used to say I could fish for dinner right on my couch. And so that was my master's thesis. I studied it for about three years and you know monitored all the levels and saw what the costs were for doing this on a home scale, on a small mm -hmm. scale. And since then, I've scaled up, and I've been doing commercial aquaponics installs over the last few years. When it comes to the small scale, what were you finding the ROI was on installing a system like this? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, it was the case where I was able to get most of the materials for free or cheap on Craigslist. The fish tank you can get for free. You know, building a wood frame was very cheap. The grow light itself, I used a fluorescent, so it was only about a hundred dollars for the T5 fluorescent fixture. The rock media was an expensive part, but all in all, I was spending about $3 a month on electricity used for the pump, the lights, the heater, and everything involved, okay. and the fish food. So, you know, it probably took me all three years to get the initial cost of the system returned, but mm -hmm. that $3 a month definitely paid for itself in basil and bell peppers and, you know, culinary herbs that I was just cranking out right. in my living room. And were you harvesting the fish from there as well to eat? Absolutely. We made a tilapia ceviche uh, the night before my wedding, and, you know, it was, it was pretty delicious. The year I got married was 2012, and not only did we have a lot of the food from our garden and this indoor aquaponics system, but we grew all the flowers. And this was the first time I ever tested a sheet mulch bed, and it was the entire backyard. I just sheet mulched everything and put flowers out there, and we had so many beautiful flowers for the wedding from that experience. So, you know, I was really testing, testing the waters of, of these theoretical concepts of permaculture mm -hmm. at the time. 
Now this is a loaded question for you when you say that you're doing large-scale aquaponics. Because of the legalization of marijuana in Colorado, yes. does any of your growing deal with that industry, some of the consulting and other work that you're doing? It does at times, although the reality is that aquaponics is primarily producing nitrate, which is a green growth fertilizer. It doesn't have enough of the fruiting and flowering nutrients to support that industry in particular. Now, I will say there are methods for doing it, and I've certainly consulted and helped to build several systems where you supplement with additional nutrients. Right. But as a standalone system, it's not typically grown with cannabis. It's much better for leafy greens and culinary herbs. I hope that helps to answer your question. So this is a good segue because you know, the systems thinking that was required with aquaponics was the transition for me into uh, gray water systems. The plumbing, the lighting, the electrical, the HVAC systems that are required for controlled indoor growing transitioned for me into not just gray water and plumbing, but natural building as a whole uh, segment of the permaculture practice. Before we get into this too far, and the conversation about gray water, can you define what that is, both from like what people might be used to experiencing, as well as we sort of get into some of the legal issues, if there's a distinction between what we might normally think of as gray water as permaculture practitioners versus like the legal definition of gray water in Colorado? Absolutely. So for those of you listening, gray water is the wastewater from your house, and it comes from your showers, your sinks, and your laundry machines. Um, technically, uh, your kitchen sink and also your toilet are considered black water. They have too much stuff in them to be reused safely. And I will draw one little distinction here. There is natural law and there is man-made law. In natural law, all of the waste gets used by something. In man-made law, some things are too dangerous to, to touch. But there are lots of laws in the United States and across the world uh, where gray water is legal to reuse both for toilet flushing and for irrigating your landscape. And this can conserve a huge amount of fresh water. Tell us a bit about what you're doing with gray water systems in Colorado and then maybe we can build on that then to talk more about the rules and regulations. So there are several types of gray water systems and I want to encourage you all at home to start using gray water today. And the simplest way to do it is with a bucket in your shower. And I started right here because I realized that every time I turned my shower on, there was three to five gallons of water going right down the drain. And so I realized I could stick a bucket under there and gather that water and use it to flush my toilet. And all it takes to flush a toilet is about one or two gallons of water. And so just using that bucket of water right there, I was able to directly reuse gray water, no plumbing required, no permit required, no questions asked. And this was a fully legal system. And then while I was in the shower, I would get two more buckets and while I was soaping up and that water was splashing off, I would gather up two more buckets of water and carry them out to my landscape and irrigate you know, my fruit trees and my perennial landscaping because again, nobody was regulating it if I wasn't altering the home's plumbing and that's really the key here. And so there are several types of systems that are possible and beyond just the bucket in the shower, a lot of these require altering plumbing in some way. And so the simplest one that I can encourage you guys to do is called Laundry to Landscape. And I have a link on my website for a free PDF for how to install this system. But the simplest system I can encourage you all to do is, is Laundry to Landscape. Essentially, your washing machine has a pump in it and it's already pumping that water up and into the sewer. All you need to do is connect a longer hose, stick it out a window or through a wall and direct it out to your landscape. 
Now, there's a lot within the code that has requirements, um, one of those being a three-way valve, so you can divert the water to the sewer or to the landscape based on the weather outside or what's going down the drain. But laundry to landscape is very simple and very affordable system. Beyond that, what I'm doing in Colorado is encouraging simple and affordable systems. Laundry to landscape is the first. Gravity-based systems from a shower on an upstairs or a main floor is the second. And then I'm also pushing this edge with what's possible for constructed wetlands, with what's possible for automated systems that use our modern technologies to self-flush and self-clean and supply this water to multiple um, locations in your home. And that automation is interesting for me and also, you know, getting the water from certain systems into certain places or like a laundry to landscape yeah. because I know I've had conversations with folks who are interested in capturing like their laundry water into storage containers to then use later right. but one of the things that I keep running into is that the oils on your skin the dead skin cells the other things that we just kind of deposit on our clothing and everything when that goes into that water it provides a base for bacteria and other things to grow and it quickly becomes something that is not safe really to hold long term or to have in a home without some kind of like UV or filtration system which gets into more complexity, you know, more cost, where really as permaculture practitioners, if, if we're going to make these systems viable for everyone, they have to be cheap, they have to be easy. And as you say, your washing machine already has this pump that can move water like 8 to 12 feet vertical, so why not use that? Yes, absolutely. And so when talking with permaculturists, I generally dis courage uh, storage tanks for gray water. Those types of systems have three parts and they're three fail points if you look at them. The storage tank, you have to store the water but you can't store it for more than 48 hours. The filter is a, a huge problem because it's down in your basement or crawl space and who's going down to change that? Right. Uh, and then the pump is a mechanical device with an impeller motor and it's plugged in the wall and who knows when that uh, electricity is going to go down. And so I, I'd strongly encourage gravity-based systems and simple, affordable systems like the laundry to landscape. And then from there, like from a home base for the laundry to landscape or using gravity from upper floors to move um, this water through the system, you mentioned constructed wetlands. Is that something that you're doing on a home scale or is that more for an industrial installation? Yeah, so I, I've done several indoor constructed wetlands sort of mimicking the earthship design of uh, what they call a botanical cell. And what I've done in Colorado with that is I've I've brought a an aesthetic finish to them using pine beetle kill or other aesthetic uh, facades that match the home's interior to hide the mechanical workings of the system. And it, it works very well to, to filter the gray water and the evapotranspiration from that system wicks the water up and all the plants get everything they need in terms of water and some supplemental nutrients from the things you said, like the skin cells and the hair, you know. Nature handles all of that stuff. Right. And so, as I understand with the law, at least in Colorado, if you keep the procession of water in a linear fashion where you're supplying your constructed wetland on one end and the overflow is going back to your sewer, as I understand, there's nothing illegal about that because you're not breaking the expected water flow that that the local municipality is expecting. You only get into trouble when you break that flow to use that water on your site for irrigation, outdoor irrigation. So irrigating the wetland as part of the system is legal because the flow goes from the tap to the sewer. 
Yes. That's my understanding, and I'm not a lawyer, so... <laughs> no, I understand, and this is where I always encourage anyone with any of these systems, if you have any questions, all knowledge in these conversations is being provided to the best of our knowledge, but please consult your local municipality, talk with your lawyer if you've got one, um, because these codes do vary a, a lot just from town to town. You know, you can drive or even walk five minutes and be in a place that handles this completely differently. So, you know, do your, your due diligence. Before we transition into the conversation about your work or legislation, is there anything else that you want to talk about technically regarding gray water systems? Yeah, so, you know, I transitioned from indoor controlled environment growing with aquaponics to gray water because I realized that all of these appropriate technology systems are the same. They use a differential of gravity or charge or movement to transport energy or nutrients or goods to their destination. And so the concept of aquaponics where you're transporting nutrients from fish to your plants was the same sort of concept as transporting wastewater from your shower to your landscape or you know transporting solar energy through a, through a solar panel to your battery backup and so I really consider myself a systems technician in some regard and um, you know I, I love to see permaculture rounding out with with a large breadth of people some in the technical realm some in the more esoteric realm and it all comes together to paint this this new story of permaculture and we need all types to make this movement happen and hopefully the patterns that I'll share with you will uh, will be useful across multiple platforms and it's interesting for me again as we were setting this up telling our own stories about how we encounter these kinds of things and my own experience with DEP and this research what I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your encounters with this and how you kind of figured out what you had to figure out you know knowing what you needed to know based on what you didn't know to figure out some of the legal issues of this absolutely so it was 2013 when the Colorado governor passed a law that allowed gray water to be used in our state and this was in conjunction with the Colorado water plan which was a really well thought through plan about how to use water in our state and so when this law passed, I was really that much more fired up and I went ahead and I started a business called Colorado Greywater. I started installing systems, I started teaching workshops, and all of a sudden, after I installed the first system in Denver at one of my friend's house, the Colorado Department of Public Health came and crashed down on me and they said, you can't do this. And I said, what do you mean? Well, they said, you know, there's a, there's a law that was passed by the governor, but we have to write the regulations and the code and the enforcement strategies. And so I looked back at them and I said, well, let me help you guys write that since I'm now a certified expert in that field. And they said, you know, there's actually a stakeholder process for this and we're, we're gonna welcome you in. And so without any prior legal knowledge, um, I jumped in head first into, into the room full of stakeholders. And through this process, I ended up developing a a series of patterns or a pattern language for legalizing sustainability because I spent three or four years in this room with these stakeholders and they really didn't want to listen to me for a long time and I realized that if I wanted to be heard I had to come at this with a smart approach. Right. The first pattern that I realized was that I was a standalone voice in the room saying simple and affordable systems work and Yes, I had a master's degree, so, so they did have an ear listening to me, but they weren't convinced by my, my voice alone. 
And so the first pattern that I really identified in the room was that I needed allies on the inside. That's my first pattern. And what it was about was finding the people in the room who were saying similar things, maybe not in the same way, but they all had an understanding of what I was talking about, the allies in the room. And one of them was a professor at CSU in Fort Collins, and one was an engineer who was designing systems. And I identified that these people knew what I was saying, simple, affordable systems. And I got together with them alone between one of our stakeholder meetings, and I said, let's reframe this, this narrative so that we have stakeholder cohesion. And that was my second pattern. Having cohesion amongst the stakeholders allowed us to share a common thread, a common voice in the room. And that carried a lot more weight than just my voice alone saying, you know, simple systems work. Having that cohesion amongst the stakeholders really gave us a stronger voice. It's interesting for me that you say that about stakeholder cohesion because when I was working on changing one of the local regulations on backyard chickens, that once I got the secretary for my township on board, she made sure that my phone calls went through, that my notes got put on the top of the pile when it was time for the board to meet, yes. so that they saw that, they were talking about it. And so you, so you identified the first ally in the room who knew what you were talking about. Right. And you created common language. Right. Yeah. Because it was, when I told her that this was what I was interested in, she's like, oh, well, why wouldn't we want to do something like that? And her interest was enough. And then showing up a couple times to ask her some questions, can you pull me this policy so that I can read it? And things like that. And then I had that ally. And it made it a lot easier moving forward. Yes. And, and so you also mentioned the next pattern in my list here, which is the common tongue. I couldn't speak as a permaculturist in this room and be heard. The things that I was saying as a permaculturist went over most of the lawyers' heads. But when I learned to speak in legalese, they started to say, oh yeah, that's a word I understand. And so the next pattern that I have here is speaking legalese. If you're trying to legalize sustainability, you need to speak the language of the people in charge. And this pattern is a really nice one because it's broader than just speaking to pass laws. It really applies across the board. If you're trying to relate with another person, speaking in a common tongue will often be that barrier to overcome, to really connect. And it's one of the things for me, as a permaculture practitioner, and as I look at practicing permaculture more, I find that a lot of folks get involved, they take a PDC because they're interested in growing food and things like that. And there comes a point for most folks where there's a switch in the thought where you finally get to see how big the picture is. And it was um, Mark Lakeman, Dave Jackie, and Larry Santoyo. I tell the story, folks have heard this on the show before, that I interviewed the three of them within like a six week period. And they were the ones who like, it was just like they dropped a knowledge bomb in my brain and rolled me out into the street. And I'm like, ah, I finally see what they were talking about when it comes to these other systems that we have to engage in. And I'm not saying everybody has to like take these patterns that you're sharing because reading laws and speaking that kind of language and understanding like something as simple as like offsets and so far from a wellhead and then what's the difference between like your well and the wellhead itself and you know where your field is and your reach field knowing all that language just for something like a gray water system is a lot not everybody has to do this but for those who are called to it's really worth getting engaged in because these are the kinds of systems that we have to start doing work within if we're going to make the sustainability that we want legal. You know, if we want to be able to graze 
different numbers of cattle on public lands when we have to be talking with people who can make those changes for us. Yes. And things. But if you can go ahead and continue for us, I just see a lot of overlap for anybody who's interested in this work, from gray water to agriculture to just living high density in cities. This approach, I hope, can be translated across the board for people who are trying to infiltrate the current system and shift it from within. And so the next pattern here that I have is called jurisdiction overlap. And this one's really interesting because if you think about the image of a vesica Pisces, in the middle of those two circles, there's a space that overlaps. And in permaculture, we talk about that as the edge space where the change happens. And so how this applied to the evolution of the Colorado gray, gray water law was that they were not going to originally allow any types of simple systems. All they wanted to see was tank, filter, pump, concrete slab, engineering stamp, expensive, expensive, complex systems. And I came into the room and I said, what about gravity from your shower? And when I brought that up in the room, there was a lot of hush going on around the room. Well, could this work? Is this even allowed? And so what I did is I identified who was in charge of the pipes in your home. And the, per the people in charge are the plumbing board. And so I contacted the plumbing board and I had this moment where I got them to say in writing that once a pipe was five feet away from a house, it's out of their jurisdiction. This magical space, it's outside of their jurisdiction. And the Department of Public Health on the other side was saying, as long as the piping complies with the plumbing board's requirements, and as long as the water quality is being dealt with by their requirements, it's out of their jurisdiction. And so by finding this magical space between those two jurisdictions where nobody wanted to take over and say that they were in charge, I managed to come in and say, gravity-based systems work. Get the pipe five feet away from your home, slope it on a standard 2% grade, and send it out to a mulch basin, and you have a system that works because then the mulch basin overlaps with what's being done for apartment complexes and things like that where they have their water overflow and biological systems to flow that water through. So it's kind of a known idea with these folks who are doing the architectural landscape. Yeah, and so as I just said, the original law did not allow any type of simple system. It was only tank filter pump. But I came into the room and I said, what about digging a hole in your landscape and filling it with mulch, just like California and Arizona and a lot of the Western states allow. And after getting enough stakeholder cohesion amongst the allies, the professors that were in the room, the engineers, we got a definition into this law for mulch basin. A hole in the ground full of wood chips served as a storage tank and a filter and allowed you to do that within the Colorado law. So we found those, those little uh, loopholes where the jurisdictions overlapped and where the language overlapped and allowed for these simple systems to happen. And you're finding previous examples within other laws from California and Arizona. It's like, it works there, why wouldn't it work here? Yes. You know, and then saying, if it's a hole in the ground, what can we call a hole a tank? And to kind of draw those connections between the language that you were using and what they were looking for within their regulations. Yes. And then when they write the law, they can say a tank is A, B, C, and D. Yes. And it can be, you know, a concrete vessel or a hole in the ground. Yes. And so we, we adopted the language from California. And so from some of our mentors like Brad Lancaster and Laura Allen, uh, we adopted that language. And, and they actually were direct helpers uh, mentoring me and consulting with me on this law to help these things come through. And so I want to bring this all back around because the most powerful pattern that I found here 
that drives the whole ship was people power. We had nothing to start on except for our will. And my own will only carried so much weight. But by getting enough people and enough people power behind this movement, this law was adopted in 2013 by the governor because we had enough people speaking out and demanding it of their local, and of their state and, and their national governments. And then it also carries over though to your role within those public meetings, those stakeholder meetings, because then you show up and you get these other people involved in it. Yes, and, and in fact I brought many members from the Denver Permaculture Guild to the final stakeholder hearing and we, we stood up in unison and we had a public voice. And so many of these meetings are boring, they're not fun, and you can bring 10 or 15 people to a meeting, or dozens of people, yes. that lets them see that there are people who are willing to take the time to show up. And I've always heard that in many of these meetings, usually they figure that for every person who shows up, there are 10 or 20 who weren't able to. So if you can bring a lot of people to just one meeting to talk about it, it really does give an impression to the people who were there that there are real people on the ground who care about this. Yes. And so I really started this Greywater thing with a, with a really strong foundation because not only did I have people supporting me, but the governor had passed a law which required stakeholders to create a form of regulation for this. And so we were starting from a place that already had a strong foundation, but it didn't have the right voices in the room. And if, if people like me and some of my other allies didn't show up the way we did, we may not have gotten to where we wanted with this law. And we might have been very strictly limited in, in what was allowed for gray water in Colorado. Because Colorado is at the top of the watershed and there's a lot of fear in our modern culture about what's going to happen to the nation's water if people start to irrigate their lawn with used water. Or better yet, if they start to irrigate a food forest and get all that water to be absorbed. Some of my first conversations about gray water were the concern about irrigating food forests and things. Because like, well, well, if there's some kind of pharmaceutical in that, will it be taken up into the, the trees? You know, what's the problem with that? And then it was like researching bioremediation to find out what does take up what. And that irrigating trees is usually one of the safest things we can do with the gray water or even black water because this idea of like a root fruit barrier, which is very similar to the brain blood barrier in the human being, that there's not much that crosses that. And we have lots of research that's emerging that of how safe fruit is regardless of what we pour on the tree. Yes. But you've got a couple of other patterns that I was wondering if you could touch on and maybe we can see where we go in the time that we have left. Of course. And so the next pattern here lends towards that edible food argument because I do want to say in Colorado, in the current state of the law, it's illegal to irrigate any edibles with gray water. And I strongly disagree with this because there, there are lots of scientific research papers out there that have shown that there have been zero, and let me repeat, zero cases of illness in the world from somebody eating a fruit off of a tree that was irrigated with gray water and getting sick. Statistically, much higher percent chance that a bird poops on your apple and you take a bite and get sick. And forget that, who's regulating my dog in my yard, right? And so I made all these arguments in the room with the stakeholders, but it was a, a little bit too late. And they're gonna be revisiting the law every two years. And I'm gonna to continue to push to make sure that edibles are allowed, especially fruit and nut trees, because that is the greatest beneficial reuse of gray water. And so the pattern I, that I identified here was cover your ass. And you know, people who write laws have one imperative, and that is to cover their own ass. 
if they do nothing over their entire tenure, but float through and don't change a single thing, they will be protected. But if one person gets sick, by one law that they wrote in the books, they're on the line. And so you have to understand where they're coming from to relate that they're trying to protect their own livelihood. And there is a way to overcome that by touching in with their humanity. And that was a large part of our people power movement was connecting with the humanity of the stakeholders. And so the final pattern that I identified here was that this whole process is really slow. Writing laws takes a lot of time. You're not gonna change a law overnight. On the scale of permanence, it belongs somewhere between water and buildings and infrastructure. It's way up there on the scale of permanence. Changing laws is a hard thing to do. This one alone took five years and it's still not where I would like to see it and where the permaculture movement like, might like to see it. But we have grit, we have perseverance to show up at every meeting and to, to share our voice. And in the current political climate, we need this more than ever, to really show up and share our voice every time we have that chance. Because permaculture, it's about shifting the social paradigm. And if we can't show up and share a new story, the status quo is going to continue to persevere. And so this pattern of immutable force is all about showing up and pushing slowly on a wall that doesn't want to move. But with enough people behind it and enough perseverance, you might shift an inch. You might shift a few inches. After a few years, you get to overcome some of those hurdles. And the more of those wins that we have, the more of those laws that we can point to. Because now that, that you've done this in Colorado, I can take that and go, here's what they're doing here and show that to the folks at PADEP and go, can we start talking about this? What kind of support can I give you to start changing these laws in Pennsylvania? Who do you know who are our allies in the legislation? Does Governor Wolf look at this and go, you know, this is something I'd be interested in, or is he so hands-off from it that we can slip it in? And I think about, in the climate that we're in, how can we talk about using this for business and making it advantageous economically yeah, and, and so I would fall back on some of these patterns that I mentioned. You know, speak a common language, find the allies on the inside, create cohesion amongst those allies, and really push to find the spots where different jurisdictions overlap and you can find an open niche to fill. And that's where you'll be able to push on this immutable force that seems to go in the opposite direction, but with enough people power, you can have a big change. And so, on that same vein, this fight is not over for Colorado. And so I'm looking to you and this podcast to spread the message that a statewide law was passed for gray water in Colorado. And what it required is that each local city, county, and jurisdiction adopt or not, or further restrict if they choose. And so I've encountered a lot more problems now in working with local jurisdictions to get these regulations adopted. And so what I need is similar to California. In California, they had 10,000 undocumented systems, and that pushed them to adopt a law that made common sense to allow those simple systems and not create 10,000 criminals. And so in Colorado, we don't want to create 10,000 criminals. We want to create a force that pushes our local jurisdictions to adopt this common sense law before it becomes an issue. 
And so I'm looking for more allies on the inside in each local jurisdiction, Boulder County, Larimer County, Denver County, um, Pueblo, Colorado Springs, all across the Western Slope. I'm looking for the allies who are wanting to see gray water systems become the norm, conserving a huge amount of our water resources that are a precious resource at the top of the watershed so that we can really conserve the water for our neighbors and our friends downstream who desperately need it. Especially the farmers, the local farmers who get junior water rights, who get bumped out of line. We need to fight for the small people and the small farmers to get the water resources that they need to push organic and permaculture farming into the mainstream. And there are some allies that do this kind of work legally that I'll include some notes about in the show notes so that people can find out more because there are some organizations that are pushing like community level legislative change that are fighting here in Pennsylvania and Ohio and some of the other places here are fighting against fracking and oil lines and pipelines and things but they're, they're exactly the kinds of folks to connect with because they can provide the kind of help that we need that you're looking for in Colorado and then that cross-pollination can apply some of their ideas to where you are and then you can help them look at gray water issues here in the East. Yes, yes. And I have uh, one more thing to say about it is that one thing that we did in, in Denver was got together with a, a group of natural builders and we call it Common Earth. It's a collective of natural builders and we advocate for each other in all of our different fields to really support the adoption of common sense, natural building within the modern building code. You know, lead building is great, but it doesn't really address a lot of these practical natural building approaches. And so we created a guild of natural builders as a group to fight for the adoption of um, building code that makes sense. Then as we draw this interview to a close, are there any final thoughts that you have? Last things that you want to share? One of my major goals over the next five years here with Greywater is to install systems on a power of 10 each year from here until 2022. And so last year I installed 10 systems across Colorado. Next year, my goal is to install 100 systems. The following year, 1,000, and then 10,000, and then 100,000 systems so that we can really have that impact in Colorado before they start damming new canyons and piping more water across the Continental Divide, let's work with the resources that we have on site. And the Colorado Water Plan supports this project and I really need the right allies to show up and support this project moving forward. So if you're listening and you wanna support this project, come and find me, coloradograywater.com. I'd be happy to chat with you and uh, move this project forward. Well, thank you very much for everything that you shared with me today. Originally, I was thinking we were going to have a very technical conversation about gray water and how to use it. When I think about it, I can point folks to your website and to other resources, YouTube and elsewhere, where really though, what we touched on is about creating the laws that we need. And we use gray water as a way to frame that conversation, but there's so much that we can do wherever we are to start having this dialogue. And I'm so happy that you joined me today to start pushing this conversation forward. So thank you, Avery, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And that was Avery Ellis. Find out more about him and his work at coloradograywater.com. I mentioned near the end of the conversation about some allies in our work to change the laws that restrict sustainable practices. Two you'll find linked to in the show notes are Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund and National Community Rights Network. The National Community Rights Network also has state chapters in Colorado, New Hampshire, 
Ohio, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. I don't mention those to be American-centric, they just happen to be some folks who I know and have worked with in the past, and I'd recommend anybody among the international audience to look for similar organizations where you live. If you're involved in any kind of community engagement around the use of natural resources, definitely check out those two organizations. I really appreciate people like Avery, and also Adam Brocker, Carnals, and Ramanujan, who continue to develop various pattern languages, drawing on the earlier work of Christopher Alexander and the team who wrote the book A Pattern Language. I find that pattern languages extend the core principles of permaculture design so that we can apply the way that we think holistically to specific problems. Karn works on issues for women in permaculture, Adam on how to create change here and now, and Avery on what it means to be involved in the stakeholder process and politically engaged in the things we care about, so that we can then lend our expertise to a problem. The patterns that he explicitly identified, which we walked through during our conversation today, were allies on the inside, stakeholder cohesion, cover your ass, people power, immutable force, and grit. Those serve as a good basis for this kind of work, but are specific to what it was that Avery was doing and what he discovered in his situation. Have you been involved in the process of political change? After hearing what Avery shared with us today, are there patterns that you would add to this list that help round it out and make it more effective for the problems that you face? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also use those ways to reach out if I can ever help you with your project or permaculture path. I keep my door open to lend a hand in whatever way I can. From here, the next episode is my conversation with Karen Lanier about her book, The Woman Hobby Farmer. Until then, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by getting involved, changing your laws, and taking care of Earth, yourself, and your community.